Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marsley. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marsley, and I thank you for joining us again this week. June is Deaf Blind Awareness Month, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into that, I want to introduce my co-host this week. Welcome back to the podcast, Colby. Hi, thank you. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> nice to have you back. Um, Colby, can you, why is Deaf Blind Awareness Month important to you? Um, well, I think it's important to me because since I grew up, I, I always knew that I was considered deaf blind. I have a hearing impairment and um, I wear hearing aids and my hearing isn't that um, bad, but it just fits um, what's considered the classification of deafblind. My, the condition that I have called Ostrom syndrome, a lot of people that have it um, do have vision and hearing impairments and is considered deafblind. And I always was interested in learning um, more about that and if there was like more people that were like me that weren't totally deaf, but were also considered deafblind. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a misconception maybe that we most people have heard of Helen Keller who's totally blind, totally deaf, and then we assume that's what deafblind means. But yeah. uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that with our expert on deafblindness, our guest today, uh, Dr. Linda Mamer is a deafblind consultant with the BC Provincial Outreach Program for individuals with deafblindness. She's also a teacher and consultant in the areas of blindness, low vision, deafness, hard of hearing, and multiple disabilities. She teaches university and college courses for interveners for children who are deafblind, educational assistants, preschool workers, teachers, and counselors across Canada and the United States. And she consults with supported independent living residences for adults with congenital deaf blindness. And she's just an all around amazing, wonderful person. Welcome, Linda Mamer. Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you uh, so much for inviting me here. And thank you for the lovely uh, introduction. Um, I'm thrilled to be here to talk about deaf blindness, especially at, at the beginning of Deaf Blind Awareness Month. Yeah. Can you? explain maybe like what classifies somebody as deafblind? Mm -hmm. Well, there's um, different ways that people look at it. In, um, in my world, in the education world, um, we have medical criteria that um, our students in particular, we see students who are kindergarten to grade 12, um, they have to have enough poor vision or no vision, and I'll explain that, or uh, poor hearing or no hearing to qualify. 
So it's a combination of the losses of both vision and hearing. So for vision, it's um, 20 over 70 visual acuity or worse in uh, the better eye with correction. It may, may be if they have a field loss of 20 degrees or more. Um, it may be that they have um, an acuity that may not seem to be too bad, but if by the end of the day, their visual abilities um, is much, are much less because of fatigue, they would qualify. So we use the criteria that uh, people use in British Columbia for students who are visually impaired. And also the criteria for students who are deaf and hard of hearing, which is for us, they need to have a moderate to severe hearing loss. But for us, really, it's the combination of the two losses, because there are people who have a vision loss and a hearing loss, but it may not be great enough to um, be a deterrent to them having what we call access to information. So if a person has a vision loss and hearing loss and their vision is still good enough that they can function independently, um, then they would not be considered deafblind. And the same is true for hearing. So this medical model, which is rare in the world of deafblindness, we're one of the few jurisdictions that have it, actually has helped to be a safety net for our students who are, who are uh, with, um, uh, in school with a vision and hearing loss because that then um, identifies themselves to get a lot of service. And we have a lot of service available in British Columbia for students who are uh, with the label of deafblindness. So let's back up a little bit. How did you get into this field? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, I grew up in Ontario and I went to university and teacher's college and I knew I didn't want to teach children in a regular classroom situation. So um, through a number of situations, I ended up um, at a training program for teachers of kids who are deaf and hard of hearing. And close to where I grew up is Brantford, Ontario, where is where the only school in Canada for children who are blind and deaf blind um, as a residential school uh, exists and has been there for many, many years. So um, during my training, I thought, oh, I'm going to tour this school. And um, I went into the deaf blind unit, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And I I thought I died and gone to heaven. I thought this is where I need to be. And the deafblind unit at the time was started because of the rubella epidemic in the 60s where thousands of children were born deafblind because their mothers had German measles while they were pregnant. And so this boom, sad to say, um, uh, was so large that they created a separate school because there were so many children from across Canada at the time who came to Brantford for the school for kids who were deafblind. And it was obviously a school where they stayed and went home at Christmas, spring break and uh, in the summers. So I started teaching there and began training as a teacher of students who are deafblind and then also as a teacher of students who were blind and visually impaired. And uh, uh, then at one point I was uh, part of the team that started the first um, resource service and we traveled all over Ontario seeing students who are deafblind in their schools. Wow, yeah. But you definitely done a lot. Well, I, I've been very lucky and I've loved it. And then I came out to British Columbia years ago to cover a maternity leave of one of my then colleagues. And um, good for her and good for me, she decided to stay off on an extended maternity leave. And I 
was planning to go back to Brantford to the school and decided I loved British Columbia so much I couldn't leave. And I've been here ever since. I, I, I mean, it seems like I know, I know quite a bit about, you know, what's required to be a teacher of the visually impaired and all the aspects of kind of teaching a child with a blindness or visual impairment to know, to have all that knowledge and everything around deafness and hard of hearing. <laughs> and then, and then, and then the third category of deaf blind, cause it's not, it's, it's combining, right? So that's a lot, that's a lot of information. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about how do children who are deaf blind take in information if they can't see or hear? Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's really the ultimate question. And when um, I started the school in Brantford, uh, my two um, bosses, my principal and superintendent, were um, leaders in the field because, of course, there were no experts in working with children who were deafblind. And they started the whole program. And they also started the concept, the Canadian concept of intervention and interveners, which we will talk about. Um, so we started learning what what should we do? How do we help these children ultimately communicate? Mm -hmm. And how, how um, do we educate them? So we started with a total communication approach. We used everything we could think of to help uh, children communicate. So at the time, there weren't as many options as there are now. So we used um, sign language, we used um, object cues. You can imagine some of these children couldn't see at all. So we did a lot of tactile learning. Um, some children had um, minimal amount of vision and a minimal amount of hearing, so we worked on that. So some children would have glasses and hearing aids and we used FM systems where the adult would wear um, a transmitter and transmit it to the children. And we just started developing more systems to help the individuals communicate. And then that expanded into a regular education where they learned, obviously, we had art, um, physical education, um, and then some of the students had um, enough abilities to um, take full academic courses. So we had the whole range of students who were quite complex in their medical needs to ones who went to college and university. So we would just figure out on an individual basis, how can this individual learn with the vision and hearing that they had? Because it was always our belief that it, it was not an aspect of their ability to learn or their brain. It was the fact that they did not get the information. It's deaf blindness is about access to information. And if you don't have the information, then you can't really participate. So we made no assumptions about their ability to learn or their IQ, um, because there are no IQ tests for individuals who are deafblind, which is a good thing. Um, and we just figured out if they could get the information that their vision and hearing is not giving them, they can learn. And that was our belief from the beginning and still is to this day. And it, it's my, my core principle is we have to get the information in and help them process it because we believe their brains can handle it. Yeah, I love that. So what happens in BC? We don't have a school for kids that are deafblind, do we? No. Uh, we used to. Um, there was a school here for, well, years ago, all the children in um, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba would come to Ontario. And at some point, the parents in British Columbia said, hmm, 
we'd rather have our students here. Mm -hmm. And they started um, a movement to have uh, students, their children, come here to a place in Richmond. They had There was a, a little school where they stayed through the week and they went home every weekend. There were six students who started it. And um, many of them came from Brantford and uh, went there. And then after a few years, the parents went, hmm, we think we'd like our, our children in their local schools. So they started that movement and the um, school in Richmond was um, stopped and all the students now live at home and go to their local schools and people like myself um, go out and visit them wherever they are across, across British Columbia at no charge to the school districts or the families. And we help the teams develop programs around the students. And right now we see between 70 and 80 students um, in British Columbia. And British Columbia, um, I always like to give credit to the Ministry of Education, um, funds um, the um, students who are deafblind at one of the highest rates in the world. So we can always use more support more funding, but students who are deafblind get quite good service here in British Columbia. And mm -hmm. we give a lot of credit to the parents who really wanted their children to grow up as, as their other children were growing up in their neighborhood, in their neighborhood schools, and uh, they accomplished that very well. I can't even imagine sending your child off like to another province to go to school, like typical child, but then also a child that's blind and deaf, like, oh my oh, gosh, <laughs> that's yeah. terrible. Good for those parents. Yeah, good for the parents. And at the time that was their only option. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and the parents would come to Brantford, learn about their students. We would fly the children back home. And ultimately we all knew it wasn't the best mm -hmm. because when they'd come home, they wouldn't be like naturally fitting into the family so now that the children are at home everyone is it's, it's so much healthier for the family and for the children then to have a community around them so are you also teaching the families the communication strategies that you're using at school well yes we consider the team we, we work for the school districts we're invited in as consultants and the families are a part of the team and also we work quite closely with the Canadian Deaf Blind Association, BC Chapter, which is a nonprofit group, and they have the mandate of working with the families, and that starts at birth, which is huge. Uh, birth to five is covered by the Canadian Deaf Blind Association, BC Chapter, so we have uh, people um, equivalent to what I do in schools and my colleagues, they go into the homes and work with the families. So the families from very early on learn communication strategies, learn how, how to define deaf blindness, which is very important, how to learn about the role of the intervener. And so when they come into school, now the parents are quite well educated as to what their child needs, what works and how to be a, a, a good functioning member of the team. Okay, so tell us, explain an intervener. So an intervener, um, when I said that years ago, the program started in Brantford, my two bosses, John McGinnis and Jackie Trefry, looked at um, how did successful adults who are deafblind exist in the world? How did they get their information? And every one of them had someone with them. 
And, and that evolved into the role of the intervener. So in the early days, we looked at an intervener as being the eyes and ears of the individual who was deaf blind. So it was their job to get the information into this person so that then we can help them learn how to communicate, learn how to um, figure out what's going on and how to be expressive communicators. So the intervener um, interprets the world for them because of the lack of vision and hearing. So this has evolved into a wonderful field and we have training programs. And right now in the United States, the, who have followed us for years, they would come up to Canada and learn about interveners. They're right now um, at the stage of moving an act through co Congress that would allow for funding for interveners. Here in British Columbia, if a, a student is in school and has the label of deaf blindness, they, they, they have an intervener. It may be a person who's like an educational assistant who's en route to being training trained as an intervener, but the children have interveners with them on a one-to-one -one basis in the school, wherever they are. So it's, it's quite amazing. And it's our job to help train the interveners on how to assist the individual um, who's deafblind to gain the information they need to be part of their world. So um, one summer I worked at uh, what used to be Camp Bowen and uh, I was a uh, like I worked there for the summer and there were different people that would come every week. And there were a couple people, adults who came who were deafblind and I learned British two hand. Um, and they, some of them would like sign, like sign language into a hand and others use this is, is British two hand still used? Uh, yes, it is. And, and there's many other uh, methods. And one of the things we always hold in our heads is when um, Jackie and John went and looked at adults who were successful, of course, they looked at Helen Keller, who mm -hmm. um, you talked about, and she really is our role model. So when Annie Sullivan showed up, and many people know the story, but it's well worth uh, uh, telling. Mm -hmm. um, when Annie showed up, she didn't know what to do. I mean, as you said, Helen had no vision, no hearing from the age of uh, 19 months. And all she knew was fingerspelling in in Annie's hand so she would spend hours every day just finger spelling in a hand which Helen said later it was more almost like um being tickled right had no reference to what what that was but Annie had no other no mm -hmm. other structure no other strategy and then she started connecting what she was finger spelling in in Annie's hand in Helen's hand to the object and and if you've seen the movie the miracle worker and if you haven't i highly suggest it when helen felt water yeah from the pump and annie finger spelled w-a-t-e-r it was like i just have chills now telling yeah, you me too when, <laughs> i mean uh an oprah aha moment um she got it she literally yeah. got it and she ran around touching stuff, throwing her hand at Annie. What is this? What is that? And that was the beginning of if you get the information in, there's a brain there to work with. Mm -hmm. Right. So now we have many strategies. So we have the British two handed method. We have finger spelling in your hand. You have printing on your in your hand. You have tactile signing. 
Um, and all the way to now, we have something called protactile, uh, more in the adult world, the acquired um, deafblind world, where people have developed systems where you touch different parts of the person who's deafblind's body to indicate emotion or it's, it's like a, another code that mm. is quite quick for the person who's deafblind to be aware of things, to be, if the, the speaker changes. And so that's being developed right now. And um, it's a very exciting um, time. And it's a way to speed up how the information sort of gets in. So there's also braille displays. Um, we use object cues with our students. We use um, photos pictures, anything we can think of to help them communicate. And so many of our students have two, three, four modes of communication, and then they develop their way to express based on these modes of communication. So now we have so many strategies. When I think of poor Annie sitting there, all she knew what to do was spell <laughs> in, in poor Helen's hand, but that was the beginning because it proved, it proved the model. Mm-hmm. It's, I always just think so amazing even to be able to teach the alphabet in the first place to be able to spell the word water and that to have meaning like amazing. It really is amazing. Um, Colby, have, did you have to use any extra support in school? Um, so I had since basically, I think since I was in, uh, I want to say like grade one, well in grade one, I had an, an EA who would help me. And at that time, um, I had, I still had quite a bit of vision and hearing and, um, they didn't really know like if I would lose more vision or hearing. Um, but then when I got to grade two, I got an intervener and I had that intervener, um, until I graduated. And it's interesting how Linda, um, explain the intervener because, Whenever I tell people, I always say um, the intervener acts as my eyes and ears to give me any information that I need that I'm missing um, because of my hearing and, and vision loss. Mm-hmm. So in university, can you use an intervener or have access to um, one? So that was a little different. Um, I was able to get somebody. They weren't trained as an intervener. Mm-hmm. Um but so basically I relied on like tutors to get accommodations and it worked pretty good actually. Um, I was really hesitant at first because I was going from having an intervener that was um, with me all the time um, and like knowing what I needed, I guess, to me having to um, advocate for what I needed and just making sure that that person knew what they needed to do as well. Okay, let's talk about etiquette uh, when you're communicating with somebody who's deaf or deafblind through an interpreter or an intervener. What what's the rule? Well, how do you do that? What's the rule? That's very very good. Well, first of all. Um, one of the, the roles of the intervener, or it can be an interpreter with some of the uh, people with acquired deaf blindness. People with acquired deaf blindness, you know, had either some vision and some hearing or all vision and all hearing. So they have um, a, often quite a good level of communication. And so then it's learning the modes to communicate. So um, 
What's important is to always make sure you talk to the individual who's deafblind directly. Um, you can, if you don't know them, you can say, I wanna learn how to communicate with you. And the intervener interpreter will help the individual who's deafblind know that that's what you wanna do. And then what I found is people are very willing to help and they can either show you how to do it or the inter intervener will help, um, help um, communicate with the individual who's deafblind. And it then goes back and forth. But it's the same that's true with when you're in, uh, interacting with a person who's deaf, you don't talk to the interpreter or intervener directly. You are communicating with the individual who's deaf or deafblind. And then it, it works as a quite a fluid situation. And interveners learn how to help people who are sighted and hearing interact with the individual who's deafblind. And really, as, as Colby said, you are the eyes and ears. So you help them and then you help the individual who's communicating with them on how to, to make it, it happen. Um, it, it sounds a bit odd, but actually it works quite smoothly because the intervener learns what their role is. And as someone moves along in their ability to communicate, uh, uh, such as Colby, Colby is the one who directs the in intervener or interpreter on how they want to be. And one of the things we often work on as the individual, um, you know, enters maybe grade six, grade seven and up, they learn how to be um, really the, the ultimate employer of their intervener. So they tell the intervener what they want. We have a whole um, manual on this that um, if they want to go to the school dance, what they want the intervener to do at the school dance, if they want to go for a job. So it's really driven from the individual who's deafblind that they direct the uh, information and their access to information through the intervener. The intervener doesn't sort of take over and explain things, um, but they are trained in the modes of communication that the individual who's deafblind um, uh, uses. So when you interacted with the person with British um, um, sign language or fingerspelling, mm -hmm. if that person wanted um, an intervener, that intervener would need to have those skills. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that was a really cool experience. We played Scrabble and it was Braille Scrabble. And when she was finished her turn, she would just put her hand, my hand on the board to let me know it was my turn. It was so cool. It was a really cool experience. Very cool. And it, and it makes you think differently about touch. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Funny side note, when you're blind and you're communicating with uh, an interpreter or an intervener, because a lifetime of being trained to look towards the voice of the person speaking is so hard <laughs> to like not do that. You know, like to try to look towards the person who's not speaking, even though that's the person you're speaking to when the voice is coming from another person. I just have to say, it's like a brain thing that, <laughs> do, yeah, I've had that experience a few times. I'm like, do not look at the interpreter, look at yeah. the person, but I don't know exactly where that person is. So it's so hard. That's so good. apologies to the people who are deaf, who I've communicated with <laughs> incorrectly, <laughs> but yeah, you're not going to say what would they like to drink or would they like a glass of water? You're asking them directly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and often we would find if you if you're in your community and you go places, some people learn how to communicate, maybe basic signs. As you get more competent in communication, there's whole ways of communicating as the person who's deafblind with 
um, cards that have braille on it in print and um, uh, the person who's maybe the store the store clerk can read it and help the individual it's all about um, being as independent as possible recognizing you still need um, a, a fairly um, simple but competent way to communicate mm-hmm. are there other things we should know or understand about deaf blindness given that it is deaf blind awareness month yeah, very nice. Well, deaf blindness through the years have, has really, um, the population that, that um, we see in schools um, has really changed. When um, we first started, all the children were deaf blind, maybe 95% because of rubella syndrome, and they were fairly similar. But as time went on, <clears throat> we're now having more and more uh, babies born with uh, extreme levels of uh, medical complexity. So many of our students in school now are in wheelchairs, receive their nutrition through a tube, um, have full-time nursing. Fortunately, we have schools that are um, set up for inclusive models. So these children come to school who, again, are very complex, um, but it's important that they're in school. And um, again, we always look to as much as they have medical complexity and lots of tubes and machines with them, we look at their greatest need being the lack of access to information that their vision and hearing is not giving them. So interveners work with these individuals and it's very important that the interveners are trained to be true interveners, regardless of the level of complexity, that they're not just caregivers. Um, so again, our desire to have those individuals be communicators, regardless of how um, the other physical parts of their body are, really drives our philosophy um, for individuals. So we're very um, focused that uh, these students are in school to learn. We may have to be very creative with how this happens, but they, many of them thrive so much being in a social environment. And of course, with COVID, this has been very, very uh, hard on some of our students who just light up when there's you know, people around them, people talking, people laughing, and, um, and, and when they can connect with people. So we're really hoping that a lot of our students who were not in school pre-COVID because of the worry of COVID alone, and now mm-hmm. with COVID, that they're able to come back to school for that. I was wondering about that. I mean, if uh, you need to be pretty hands-on with kids who are yeah. deafblind, how, how has that worked through COVID? Well, um, Many of our students who uh, stayed at home have Zoom lessons. And um, so the the parents essentially become the interveners Mm -hmm. and the intervener works with them virtually. And then often um, people who do what I do at the Provincial Outreach Program for Students with Deaf Blindness get on the call with them and we figure out again, it's all about communication, routine, predictability, uh, what what are we doing with them that makes sense? What concepts are they learning? And the irony of this is many of these students are often quite ill and don't come to school, but with COVID, they've had 100% attendance. <laughs> yeah. And the beauty, of, yeah, the beauty of this has been the families have become so much more knowledgeable about how their child interacts and communicates. And at the same time, the Canadian Deaf Blind Association, we've been doing Zoom Uh, craft hours, again, with the whole family. So again, it has really opened up how families can be active participants 
in the communication process with their children? I think like, even though we've had COVID and everything that's gone on, I really think that there's been some really positive things that have come out of it. Yeah, I I completely agree. We call them silver linings. Um, (laughs) We've had some students who um, really wouldn't look at a screen, become very interested. I had one of my students who's deaf blind sitting on the floor with a big screen um, right at his sort of eye level. And his intervener was on the uh, Zoom call. And my student actually reached out to the screen to try to touch the intervener. So you knew he knew that that was his intervener. And then they did a whole lesson together. So as much as we would like everyone to be together, um, some of these areas have really opened up to help the child uh, communicate and interact in different ways. So if we're out in the world and we come across somebody who's deaf blind, any suggestions on how to start a conversation? Uh, That's a very good question. It would depend if they had someone with them. Um, And then it would be an intervener or interpreter and and you could just approach them. Um, If they are not with someone, I would suspect that they have some way to communicate with the public, whether it's uh, um, something handheld, it could be their phone, and then you can text that way, it could be cards. Um, Many people who with acquired deaf blindness would have a card that would say, um, can you help me? And then it would have, they'd have like a yes or no card. Mm. Um, Can you help me find the bus stop? Can you help me cross the street? That sort of thing. It's obviously on a basic level as you start, but it's probably easier than you think because people who are deaf blind are very keen to communicate. So they are happy when people try Mm. and, um, And sometimes it's just figuring out what works for that person. But texting became the thing that really Uh opened up the world for, you know, it started with people who were deaf. That was like overnight. They were instantly communicating. And then when it moved into the world of deaf blindness, some of my adult friends who are deaf blind, we would communicate five, six times a day without the need of an intervener because of texting. And it just opened up the world overnight, literally. Yeah, that's great. So are there any events happening as part of DeafBlind Awareness Month? Yes, there's, there's quite a few, actually. Um, and DeafBlind Awareness Month is June because that's um, the, the month to, to date. Um, Helen Keller was born in June and she passed away in a June. Mm-hmm. So we look at the whole month. So this year, we just received notice that the province of British Columbia is proclaiming June as DeafBlind um, Month, DeafBlind Awareness Month. So we're very excited about that. And also cities now are starting to proclaim it. So people are getting more aware. So New Westminster, Richmond, and Victoria have agreed to um, proclaim DeafBlindness Month. Um, many of the um, big areas around British Columbia are going to be lit up. Blue is the color of deaf blindness. It was just chosen as we look at a wave going across Canada mm-hmm. in deaf blindness. Um, so some of the big um, like city halls and um, bridges are going to be lit up uh, cool. blue either on June 1st, which is the start of Deaf Blind Awareness Month, or for the whole month which is fantastic. Oh, yeah. And we're also doing this new thing 
that you may or may not have ever heard about, none of us really had, called yarn, like in wool, bombing. And it started in Europe where people would knit, 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 and then go cover something to bring awareness to whatever they were bringing awareness to. And the DeafBlind World, DeafBlind International, has taken on yarn bombing as our way to help with awareness. And one of it is, uh, part of it is the tactile aspect of, um, mm -hmm. of yarn. So people are knitting like crazy to cover different, either statues or doorknobs or parking meters or the, the big hockey stick in Duncan. Oh, uh, wow. A of oh, schools, wow. Yeah, a couple of our uh, schools are knitting and they'll, they'll yarn bomb something around the school in a way that people will go, why is this happening? And then people have the opportunity to talk about deaf blindness. So if you see anything, um, you can take a picture. We're having pictures shared with like Twitter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and in Burnaby, apparently there's sheep that are metal sheep. And we're hoping to get enough uh, um, squares of yarn to cover the sheep. In <laughs> oh, wow. So it's complete, it was completely new to all of us. And it's just, it's, it's now going around the world. That's uh, really cool. Which is yeah. very cool. Is I, it only in June that yarn bombing can happen? Well, that's how it's starting. Okay. So who knows? <laughs> uh, and a lot of the places are going to have tags on it. So you can just um, go to the QR code and then find out more about deaf blindness if you see something that oh, is cool. bombed. So oh, that's yeah. awesome. So if somebody wants to get involved and knit, should they get in touch with the Canadian Deaf Blind Association? That's exactly. Who they okay. Should All right. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. I knit a little. I can make oh, some squares. That would be great. <laughs> I knit. Nothing. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of us learned how to knit with straws. So we've been doing that. Oh. Make little squares and um, we're going to go forward with our awareness that way. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and the other thing that just happened last week is Mattel, who produces Barbie, came out with a Helen Keller doll. I heard about that. Um, yeah. That's very cool. And she's holding a book and it says, um, it says the word Braille on it. And then on the box, there's a whole description of, um, of Braille. Um, oh, wow. That's so cool. Uh, and, and about Helen Keller. So we're very excited about that. Does she have a white cane too? You know, I haven't seen, I've, I'm going to get one, but I haven't seen all that, what comes with it. Right. Um, all the accessories. Yeah. All the accessories. <laughs> yeah. That's right. right. She, you know, quite a remarkable woman had many facets to her. Um, and, um, often, uh, students in, uh, grade four, grade five study her. So, um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of books, um, written at that level about Helen Keller and, um, how, how many things she was part of and how many, you know, she traveled, she was the first person who was deafblind to graduate from a university in, in America, um, mm -hmm. really was a, a true role model in um, how does someone who appears to have, you know, such great um, need become such a competent uh, contributing person? Well, actually, I don't know if this is talked about in Helen Keller's book or not, but does it ever say like why she was born deafblind? Well, when she was born, she could see and hear. And at the age of 19 months, she 
got what people believe was scarlet fever. Oh, okay. And then, and then became uh, totally deaf and totally blind. And um, if you see the movie in those early years, she, she could walk and obviously had some memory and became what she in herself called a wild animal. She would, you know, grab people. She would um, throw her parents' keys away. She'd hide. She, um, the behavior became quite um, extreme. And that's why her parents looked to find someone who could, who could help her. And then when they hired Annie Sullivan, they gave her two weeks to, uh, to <laughs> straighten to things out. <laughs> yeah, straighten things out. That's exactly it. We all know how that went. Um, so she came, really, God bless her. She was visually impaired herself and came from the Perkins School for the Blind um, uh, that people got in touch with to, to help the, the family, the Keller family. And then she kept insisting that um, she needed more time, more time. And um, thank goodness she did uh, because the parents didn't really know what to do with her. And they just really tried to, I'm going to say, soothe her or keep her happy and right. had, no, had no requests of her. And in the movie, the pivotal scene, in my mind, was the dining room scene where they were all at the dining room table and Helen didn't sit to eat. She went around and took food from everyone's plate and ate it. <laughs> and you, know, you can imagine, Annie was like, what is going on here? And uh, so, to Annie's credit, she made everyone leave and she sat there at the table with Helen and it became quite a physical scene in the movie it's a little bit hard to watch but she knew this is the part about she believed in Helen's brain so much she knew that Helen could learn and so it was her goal to have Helen sit at the table and eat in the typical way and they did this over a four-hour period there was some wrestling that went on and loud noises um, but Annie persisted and I have to tell you when I first started teaching I had a student who was exactly like that she ate from everyone's plate <laughs> and so really? yes and 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 wandered around and the parents were just happy she was eating mm. and so when I saw that and so then after four hours Annie comes out she's like her hair is all askew her clothes are all you know um, <laughs> you know in all different ways and she said she came out and said to to the mom mrs keller who was waiting because she'd heard all this noise and she said and i i actually get emotional when i say this she said not only did she sit at the table she folded her napkin Aww. that wow. idea that she could do something that was so normal and social and it wasn't just the eating it was she was a human Mm -hmm. she, she could learn to do these things and every time I see the movie I watch that scene because that it could have been my student yeah you know <laughs> that that Annie believed Helen could learn and learn at a high level and that is that is you know such a strong thing that that Annie developed without really any help you know right. but when she said she she folded her napkin that 
to me is like, oh my gosh, it wasn't just getting a spoonful of mashed potatoes in her mouth. Mm-hmm. It was, she was a human. And you can raise your expectations for what she'll be able to do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Linda, I love your passion and I think your students are so, so lucky to have you to work with them. I just, and thank you. And we're lucky that you're here today sharing all of this with us. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Colby. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks Colby for co-hosting with me. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, or a future topic request, send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Share this podcast with a friend, leave us a comment or a rating, and join us again next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.